I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 17, and over the next uh, three weeks we'll be looking at this chapter, which is basically one long prayer. And I'm going to begin this morning by looking at the first five verses. John 17, verses 1 through 5. Hear God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I was asked this past week to fill out a survey. Some of you might have seen it. It was later posted to our Facebook page. But it was a survey about favorite books. And the last question was this, what book would you want with you on a desert island after the Bible, a hymnal, and a shipbuilding guide? (laughs) Now, as I thought about that question, I considered and rejected quickly two possibilities. The first idea I had was the unabridged Oxford English Dictionary, so that I would have plenty of paper to make for fire, to use for fires. The second idea I had was the God delusion by the atheist Richard Dawkins. I thought maybe the reason I would want a book like that was so it would be very highly motivated to get off the island. But what I ended up recommending was a book that is very precious to me. It's called The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. It's a collection of prayers. Some of you are probably familiar with the book. It's basically a collection of prayers that uh, some of the later Puritans wrote and some of the most beautiful expressions of prayer you're ever going to read anywhere. And I use it every morning before I start my own prayers. After I've had my time of scripture reading, I read one of those prayers every morning because these men who wrote these prayers were great men of God who were very spiritually mature who love the Lord dearly. And so I read their prayers to show me what prayer could and should look like. And it's always been a great help to me. Their prayers are so Christ-centered and kingdom-focused that they challenge me to repent of my short-sighted, self-centered, and materialistic prayers. Why do we enjoy answering questions like that anyway? What books would you take to a des- you know, want to have on a desert island? What are your top five desert isle discs? That's one I used to, as uh, audiophiles, we'd answer that question off among our, often among ourselves. If you were granted three wishes, what would you wish for? If you 
want a million dollars, what would you use it for? Why do we like to answer those questions? It's because they are windows to our soul. Because our answers reveal to us and to other people, what do we want most in life? What do we care most about? What do we treasure and value most highly? What are your strongest passions in life? This morning we're going to begin looking at this great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. It divides very neatly into three sections. The first five verses that we read a moment ago is where Jesus prays for himself. The second section we'll look at next week is where he prays for his 11 disciples, the men who would become the apostles, his spokesmen, his leaders for the early church. And then the final section we'll look in the third week is where he prays for those who will believe through their witness. In other words, the church, this international church of Jesus Christ as it continues to exist and grow today. The four Gospels, if you take them together, reveal that Jesus Christ was a great man of prayer. He depended upon prayer, prayed all the time. But in very few instances are we given the actual content of his prayers. And this one is unique because it's by far the longest where we have the content of his prayer. And it makes you wonder, why did the Holy Spirit, first of all, how did the Holy Spirit, but then secondly, how, why did the Holy Spirit have this included in the inspired word of God? And I think it's because the Holy Spirit wanted to give us a window into the soul of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit wanted us to see how he prayed. What were his passions? What did he care most about? What were his priorities? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. One commentator calls this one of the mountain peaks of revelation in the New Testament. Makes me think of Psalm 37, verse 4, where it says and gives us, I think, the key to a profound, meaningful, and effective prayer life. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's a priority there. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then you will see him grant to you the desires of your heart. In this last section where Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure, he talks a lot about prayer and answered prayer, and here he gives a glimpse into what his desires were in his heart so that we might know how to pray. The more our heart, reflects, our heart desires reflect the heart desires of Christ, the more we are going to see powerful answers to our prayers. So what were the desires of our Savior's heart? Let's look at that, but first I want to point out something you might have just missed if you read through it quickly. It says in verse 1 that Jesus, as he's finishing his final lesson with the disciples, as he's about to go to the cross, it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And that jumped out at me. And my first thought was, I'll be honest with you, doesn't, you know, isn't it say somewhere in the Bible that we're supposed to have heads bowed and eyes closed when we pray? He lifted up his eyes to heaven. But actually, I was reminded that According to scripture, if you just take scripture and you add to that what we know from early church history, the most normal posture in prayer in the early church and probably in the, in the days of Christ and the apostles was to 
lift up your hands and your eyes to heaven. To stand with your hands like this to say, I am dependent and ready to receive grace and wisdom. And it was to look up to heaven as the source of all that is good and all that is gracious. Sometimes they would kneel and be in that same posture. A lot of times in pictures that we have, drawings we have from the early church, they are standing with hands lifted and eyes raised. We do know that in times of great need, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, sometimes Jesus and other faithful people of God would fall on their faces, prostrate, and pray. But the normal posture was, was what's described here. He lifted his eyes and probably his hands to heaven. And I say that not because I believe that the scripture dictates that that's how we must pray. And quite honestly, I don't think there's anything wrong with bowing our head and closing our eyes when we pray. But understand that's tradition. That's not commanded in scripture. And that whatever we do in tradition, we ought to be thinking about why we do it. And that there is good scriptural warrant for praying with eyes lifted and hands lifted to heaven. It's not wrong to bow your head, but it is tradition. And God's word doesn't command any posture. But the one thing that I would want you to think about before we get into the content of the prayer is what do you say with your posture? We talk about that all the time, that our body language communicates something. And so I would just ask you to think about that. Is your posture in prayer, what does it communicate about your heart attitude? Because that's really what we really want to focus this morning. What was the heart attitude of Christ in this prayer. One other thing I need to point out before we go into the content is that this isn't a model prayer for us. We have a model prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. It's called the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. This is not a model prayer because we can't pray this prayer because it can only be prayed by the eternal Son of God who had a unique relationship with the Father. And there are many things he says in here that only this eternal son of God could say. And so we're not looking to this prayer to say how should we pray word for word. But what I'm asking you to do that as we look this week and the next couple of weeks at the content of the prayer. That we ask ourselves what is the attitude of his prayer. What are the desires of the heart of Jesus Christ as he prays his prayer. Because that is what we are to imitate. Our hearts should conform more and more to his heart. We should more and more share his desires. So let's look at his first request. And in this first request in his prayer, you see his greatest overarching desire and his first priority, and that's to share the Father's glory. To share the Father's glory. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, the word glorify is one of those kind of Christianese words. We use it a lot around the church, but the world has no idea what we mean by it, really. And quite honestly, if we don't think about it, we're not quite sure what we mean by it either. We tend to use the word glorify as a synonym for praise and worship. But that's not the best literal understanding of the meaning of the word. The word glorify more literally would mean to display the excellencies of someone or something. To display those excellencies, not to make them come into being, but they're there, but to make them obvious to others, to, to display them before the world. Makes me think of Psalm 19, where it says, The spacious heavens declare the glory of God. 
the heavens, the literal physical heavens, glorify God because they display his greatness, his power, especially as you think of the night sky, of how it shows us how big God is. We can't comprehend how big the universe is and how powerful are the forces out there, how large are the heavenly bodies out there. All of those things are put in the place that they are put, in the way in which they're put, and with the beauty of what they're put, to, in order to show us how great our God is. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation puts on display the power and greatness of our God, how wise he is, how artistic he is. I was talking last week with some of you that have come back from trips, vacation trips this summer, and we were talking about waterfalls because some got to go to some of the great national parks and got to see some of the the big waterfalls, and I've not been out west to see some of those, but I've been to Niagara Falls, and we were sharing about that that first experience when you first encounter one of the great waterfalls. It's it's really almost a, a feeling of physical pain because you're so overwhelmed with the power and the majesty and the greatness that you that that the waterfall represents as you just see the mass and the weight and the the speed the power of the water and so when I think of how the creation testifies to the greatness of God I always think of Niagara Falls because we should when we think of the greatness of God we should have that same constriction in our chest that same 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 fear really, of the Lord, because he's so great in power. And so that helps us to understand what Jesus is praying for. He says, glorify me, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. May your greatness be on display in me, he's saying. Don't ever pray that prayer for yourself. Don't ever pray, Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. This is something that only the perfect, eternal Son of God can pray. But unfortunately, we do tend to pray that prayer, don't we? Father, make me great. Father, make me successful. Make me wealthy. Make me healthy. Make me famous. And when you do that, I'll be sure to give you the credit. We usually renege on that second clause, but... We pray that way, but that's not for us to pray. The greatness of God the Father can only be clearly seen in God the Son. Jesus says, glorify me so that I may glorify you. And that is because he alone is the perfect representation of who the Father is. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, this whole gospel started with this statement. No one has ever seen God, the only God, the Son of God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Only the eternal Son of God has made God the Father known. Later on in this gospel, Jesus would say, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Only Jesus can say that. Later, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
He's saying, glorify me, make my glory be known in the earth so that you, Father, may be glorified because you and I are one and he who has seen me who has seen the Father. That's what he's praying for. And if that's Christ's greatest desire, if that's the first request that he makes in prayer for himself, that God's glory be shown through him, then how are we to pray? If we can't pray this prayer word for word, then how should we pray? Our prayer should be that we see that glory first of all. Show me your glory is the real deepest desire of a disciple, of a sinner like you and me. Lord, show me your glory to see that glory, then to reflect that glory in both the way we live and in our attitude and the way that we interact with the world and to show God's glory in Jesus Christ. What does the glory of God look like? We are to be continually pointing to Jesus Christ. That's what the glory of the Father looks like. It looks like Jesus Christ. I want to reflect that in my life. The way, my attitude, my thoughts, my words, my deeds. I want to reflect that glory, but I am an extremely poor representation of it. You need to look to Christ. And so we glorify God in Christ. That's why in the model prayer that I mentioned a moment ago, the Lord's Prayer, it starts by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed basically means glorify your name. May the world see how great you are. And quite honestly, and we know this from our experience as disciples of Jesus Christ, don't we? That the glory of God often shines much more brightly in us through our weakness and through our suffering than it does through our successes in life. May God be glorified in me, in Jesus Christ. Over in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter's talking about how we suffer in faith, but in that context, this is what he says, beginning in verse 10. As each has received a gift from God... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's our first priority. That God be glorified through Jesus Christ in the way that I use the gifts that God has given me. The gift of of salvation and the gifts of service, the gifts of his word. That I use those in such a way that God the Father is glorified through Jesus Christ. That's to be our main desire. As it was Jesus' desire that he be glorified, that the glory of the Father might be seen. The second request... The second great desire that's expressed in this prayer of Jesus for himself is that he be able to complete the mission that he was given. Matter of fact, he speaks, interesting, did you notice that? He speaks as though it's already done, even though he hasn't quite yet gone to the cross. But he is speaking as one who has completed the work of the cross. And he says in verse 4, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. At the end of his life, Jesus Christ said, it is finished. He's the only person who ever lived on the face of this planet that knows the full satisfaction of having completed without any flaw, without any sin, without any deficiency, he completed the work that God the Father gave him to do. 
many years ago when my wife was a housewife, a mother living at home with five small children, and I was struggling and trying to learn how to be a pastor in small churches, I would come home and we would commiserate often in the evening about how both of us had jobs that were never finished. That she would clean a room and as soon as she cleaned it, she'd turn her back and turn back around and the room was totally messy again. She would finish the dishes and as soon as they were done, the kids had come and made a whole other set of dishes dirty. She would finish the laundry just to begin the, pro- the whole cycle again. Her job was never finished. I said, you know what, I know it doesn't seem that way, but being a pastor is an awful lot like that too. <laughs> Because I never look at myself or the leaders in my church or the members of my church or the church as a whole and look and say, I'm finished. The job's done. We don't know that as sinners in a fallen world. And so we can never pray this prayer that Jesus prayed and say, I have completed the mission. But he was able to. Think about it for a second, though. How could Jesus Christ claim to have finished the work he was given to do. Only a tiny percentage of the world's population during the three years that he did public ministry, only a tiny percentage of the world's population heard his teaching. Even fewer people witnessed his miracles. And as he spoke, he's left basically with 11 disciples and a few dozen others that were attached to his small group. That was the church. At the moment when he cried from the cross, it is finished. How could he say that his work was finished? That's because no matter what false preachers might say in the pulpits of so-called churches, Jesus did not come to teach us how to live and give us an ethical system. Jesus did not come to alleviate suffering and poverty. He did not come to overthrow the Romans or the Jewish authorities. His mission is described by Jesus himself in verse 2. He says, You, Father, have given him, the Son of God, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. To give eternal life to all whom you have given. The moment in Jesus Christ's earthly life when he most glorified God, most displayed how great and powerful and good and merciful God is, is when on, with that last ounce of physical life, as he hung there on the cross, and as that last ounce of life was spent, and that last drop of the cup of God's wrath was poured out into him, and he cried out, it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, that is when the glory of God was at most ever in the history of the universe from that time even till now was ever displayed by Jesus Christ. We see God's power and wisdom and artistry as we mentioned a moment ago in creation, but we see the fullness of God's love and his mercy and his justice displayed on the cross because you and I deserve to be there. But he sent his son who lived a life of perfection, displayed the Father's glory without flaw, and yet he sent his Son to pay the price that we deserve for our sins, to be fully punished and to bear the wrath of God. In Romans 3, Paul tells us that it was the display of the righteousness of God. That's what the cross was. It was the display of the righteousness of God. 
where the Father was shown to be just, in other words, holy and righteous in fully punishing sin, and at the same time the justifier, the one who makes righteous those who have faith in Jesus Christ. The cross is the greatest display of the glory of God. Remember when many of you, and this may be dating myself and my generation, but many of you, I'm sure, were taught that simple prayer at mealtime by your parents, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for the food. We always had to say it that way because they never could figure out how good and food actually rhyme. But God is great and God is good. You know, the world lives to say, I am great, and I'm good enough. Matter of fact, that's the passion of the heart of anybody who's outside of grace and redemption. To live to say, I am great, and I'm good enough. But our declaration is that God is great, and God is good. He is merciful. He is full of power. As the creator of the universe, he's full of power beyond our imagination. And he is more just than we will ever understand as sinners. He hates sin with a perfect hatred and he must punish sin. So God is great, but God is so good. And that he shows his love and mercy to those for whom Christ died. And notice the wording of that. I think it is important to point out that Christ's death, as the ultimate point of his mission, is completely successful. He says that he was sent by the Father to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. He accomplished our salvation at the cross, and all that remains is the application of that salvation to those for whom he died. That's all that remains, and that's what the last 2,000 years has been about. But you notice the wording there. We often talk about, say, I, when did you give your life to the Lord? Well, I gave my life to the Lord when I was 17. But from heaven's perspective, from God's perspective, we don't give our life to the Lord. It says here, Jesus in his own words says that the Father gave our lives to him. That's where our salvation started. Not when we gave our life to the Lord, but when God the Father gave our lives to Jesus Christ and the Ephesians chapter 1 teaches us that that took place before the world was created. He gave us to Christ so that Christ might redeem us. And that, if you understand that, you go back to the language that that Jesus used earlier back in John chapter 6. Listen to what he says. Keeping in mind that God the Father gave us to him before the foundation of the world, And this is what he says, beginning in chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day. Do you notice how the confidence of Christ, that everyone that the Father had given to him will come to him, 
will believe on him, will be given eternal life, and will be raised up at the last day. Again, that language is reflected over in chapter 10 when he talks about the church as his sheep. Beginning in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Skipping down to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. All of that language is behind this request of Jesus when he says that his mission was to give eternal life to all who the Father has given to him. He cannot fail. He accomplished all that needed to be accomplished at the cross. All that remains is for the lost sheep of Christ to be given that gift of life. And it will come to pass. They will be given eternal life and they will be raised up on the last day. And then in verse 3, another thing I want to point out about this request before we move to the last one. In verse 3, he says that the essential characteristic of that life that he gives is not that it's endless. We tend to think, well, you know, living forever, that's so mind-boggling to us. And when we think of eternal life, our focus gets on the fact that it never ends, that it's, it's ongoing, ongoing existence. But that's not what the focus of Scripture is. And Jesus makes that clear in verse 3. He says that life is not about how long we live, but how we live it. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Knowing God and his son, Jesus Christ, forever. We will never get to the bottom of that well. We will never know God the Father and Jesus Christ fully, but wow, what a way to spend eternity. Digging deeper and deeper into who Jesus Christ is and who God the Father is. That's eternal life. When people say, and I've had it said many times, you know, I'm a little worried about going to heaven because it kind of sounds boring to me. That's not boring. That's not boring to know God, to see his glory, and to dig deeper and deeper into the goodness and greatness of who he is. That is not boring. And realize that that eternal life doesn't start when you die. That eternal life doesn't start when Jesus Christ comes again. That eternal life starts the moment that you're born again by his grace. Because that's when he changes the desires of your heart. That's when he gives you that desire to know him, to see his glory, and to draw as close to him as possible. And that desire is painfully weak in all of us, really. But it's getting stronger by his grace. To know him deeply, intimately, for eternity. And that eternal life is a gift that you can have today. And it's a life that gets bigger and stronger and more profound the more you spend time in his word, the more you spend time in prayer, the more time you spend in worship, in fellowship with God's people. As you draw upon the means of grace, he keeps strengthening that and, and, and intensifying that desire to know him. And that is eternal life. As we pray, we need to reflect this second request of Christ. We need to have a passion to know Christ, to know the Father, and to see others know him. 
to see, even though his mission is complete, everything that needs to be done to save all of his sheep has been accomplished at the cross, still we're waiting for the last of the lost sheep to receive that eternal life and to be brought into the kingdom. And that needs to be a passion that's reflected in our prayers. The great commission that he gave. He says, all authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples in your neighborhood, in your family, in your community, in the world. That needs to be reflected in our prayers as well as our efforts. Thirdly and finally, his last request is to return to the Father. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We can't pray that prayer. Because we did not exist in eternity past with God the Father. Before the world was created, before anything else existed, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit lived eternally in the past in perfect fellowship, glorifying one another, enjoying one another. And Jesus, could you imagine what it was like to live as a, as a human being, even a perfect human being in this fallen world amidst us sinners like he did for as long as he did? How much he must have longed to go back to the presence of the Father that he shared before eternity. You know, when you understand that perspective of Christ, then you read what Paul says in Philippians 2, and it just comes alive to you. He says, have this mind, again, have this attitude, have this passion in your heart. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus in this last prayer request for himself is saying, Lord, make it, make it happen. Let it be. May I be returned to the glory of your presence. May I be delivered from this hard mission through victory, through obedience to be restored into the fullness of your presence again. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we can't pray that prayer request the same way Jesus did because we've never been there. We don't know what it's like. But our desire should be there to be there for the first time, to experience the fullness of our salvation. That passion should be reflected in our prayers. To be, in a sense, and I've always said to Christians, there should always be, even though we are taught to be content, there should be a holy discontentment as long as we are still separate from the face of God. There should be a holy discontentment with the sin that we have to deal with in our own lives day in and day out. There should be a holy discontentment with the sin of others that surround us. As the psalmist says, tears flow from my eyes because they do not keep your law. That, there should be a, a discontentment with that. There should be a discontentment with the fact that evil reigns and chaos seems to reign even though Christ is on the throne. It should be reflected in our prayers that we want to see the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. The greatest passions of our Lord are reflected in this prayer in these short five verses. 
He longed for the world to see his glory and therefore to see the Father's glory. And he is now the King of kings and Lord of lords, seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and we glorify him through our worship. Secondly, he longed for all his sheep to receive the gift of eternal life that he won for them at the cross. He finished his mission. And now he works through the church and the Holy Spirit, through our witness and the witness of the Spirit, to apply his finished work to his sheep to bring them to himself. And that work will be finished one day soon. And thirdly, he longed to be eternally in the presence and fellowship and the sweetness and joy of the Father himself. He is there, and we anxiously await his return that we might be there with him. We can't pray this prayer word for word, but we must reflect the passions that are behind it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You hear the passions of Christ behind those requests that he taught us to pray? Our prayers are a window into our souls. I'm going to ask you this week to go home and just do a serious, analytical, thorough study of your prayers. How are you praying? Do your prayers reflect the heart of Christ? Are you consumed with the things that consumed him? Is what he wanted what you want? Are you even praying? Are you depending on prayer like your Lord did? Let's pray. Father, prayer is such a gift. Lord, we thank you that Christ, who lived in eternal and perfect fellowship with you, exhibited for us the importance of not only praying, but praying with the heart of the Son of God. That we have a deep passion for seeing the name of God hallowed in the earth, of seeing God the Father glorified through Jesus Christ the Son. Father, may our prayers more and more reflect our desire to see others come to know this eternal life of knowing you more deeply and more intimately, that others might know it as we know it and that we be used in that process. And Lord, may our prayers continually be filled with the promises that you give of our inheritance, of the fulfillment of your promises, of the taking away of sin and suffering, and the fullness of your glory being displayed before us as we see you face to face. May our prayers reflect that passion as well. And Lord, as the desires of our heart become like the desires of the heart of Jesus Christ, may we see powerful, frequent, profound answers to our prayers as the kingdom of God becomes more visible around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.